We're going to be focused on in our message time today. We're calling today's message, The Best Help That You Can Give. And uh, I wonder if you've ever been in a place where it's so crowded that you could barely move, you know, shoulder to shoulder. I don't know if you like those kinds of places, that kind of feeling. Uh, I don't. And uh, for me, uh, the time that I, I flash back to every time I think about great crowds was uh, after college, I went to Europe and I spent a couple of months in London. And we would ride on the tube. That's what they call their subway there, the tube. And you'd be crammed into these, these uh, train cars, these subway cars, shoulder to shoulder. And I didn't care for that. And then I had a couple of friends that came and visited. And we decided to go to a rock and roll concert, Bruce Springsteen. And it was in Birmingham which was about two and a half hours from London. And we crowded onto the trains, hundreds, thousands of people going to this concert. And then we finally got there and we walked to the stadium, the, uh, the soccer, uh, the football stadium, they, the soccer. And, and we crammed in there. They don't, they don't even have seats in their stadiums. Everybody just stands the whole time. And you're shoulder to shoulder to shoulder, people everywhere for, I don't know, three, four, five hours crammed there, and then back on the train, back to London. And I think it was there that I decided, I'm, I'm not into the large crowds. And that was probably the last uh, stadium concert I ever went to. Crowds are not fun. And uh, boy, let's, let's think though. I want us to think about crowds, because as we continue in this series, the gospel that's penned by Mark, that's inspired by God, we are beginning to see Jesus draw crowds around him. And we come to another story today, another uh, situation where there's a large crowd. And so here's where we're headed today. We're going to see this incredible encounter that takes place in Mark chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read the passage little by little. I'm going to add some, some thoughts along the way. And then uh, when we're finished with the text, we're going to really finish, uh, think about some takeaways, some things that we can apply in our own life. And then we're going to celebrate communion together. So that's the track we're running on this morning. And so I want you to begin with me thinking about the setting. The setting in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Mark writes. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And so we learned last week that Jesus had been gone, uh, headed out on a preaching mission all around Galilee, probably for a number of weeks, maybe even months. And now he comes back to his home base in Capernaum. Likely he returns to that same house, Peter and Andrew's house, where he had healed Peter's mother-in-law. And the text says, many were gathered together so there was no more room, not even at the door. Jesus was like a magnet, and the crowds were being drawn to him. This is a, a, a full house situation, if you will. It was packed inside, and it was a traffic jam outside. And it says that he was preaching the word to them. Now, this is uh, not the normal word that we might think of for preaching. It's uh, a word for conversation. And really, the word means lovely sounds. Isn't that a great thought that Jesus was making Lovely sounds, lovely words, and the crowds were being drawn to him. When I thought of that, I kind of thought back to a, an old hymn, a hymn in the garden, if you're familiar with that, there's a little phrase and it says, he speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet, the birds 
hush their singing. Folks, you see, when, when we share the good news of Jesus with others, it's important for us to include this model from Jesus. We're not called just to, to preach at people, but it's important for us to dialogue and discuss using pleasant words. May our conversation about Jesus be filled with love and care and concern, never with disdain or sarcasm or hurt. And so that's the setting as Jesus invites the crowd around him. And next we want to talk about the sickness. So let's continue in verses 3 and 4. And it says, they came, this crowd, they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And so we begin to kind of focus in on what's going to happen in the midst of this large crowd. And we find out that there are four men bringing somebody described as a paralytic. That's a word that describes somebody that's lost control of their body. Maybe through a stroke or a disease, maybe even from birth, whatever it is, this man is paralyzed. He's unable to walk. And it says when they got near to Jesus, when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, just Stop there for a moment and imagine the disappointment. These, these four friends have carried their disabled friend for a considerable distance only to arrive and to see there's no way they're getting to Jesus. And so the story continues and Mark says they removed, literally it means they unroofed the roof. They removed the roof above him, above Jesus you know anything about the houses in the first century they had flat roofs maybe with a, a stairway or a ladder that went up to the flat roof where you could perhaps sleep at night in the cool uh, kind of like a patio with outside, outside stairway and it says when they got up there it says they made an opening they made an opening and so the roofs were made out of a combination of, of thatch and sticks and mortar and sand and branches and so you can just picture these guys tearing into that roof, making an opening. Can you imagine if that happened in the ceiling right now, if we were just here and all of a sudden there's dirt and debris dropping before us? In fact, I remember one Sunday night years ago, right in this auditorium, it was when we had the evening service. The service had ended, people were standing around and suddenly we heard some noise somewhere up above here and all of a sudden a pair of legs dropped through one of the ceilings and it was, it was Gordon Locke, one of our deacons. Do you remember that, Gordon? We looked up and there's Gordon's legs dangling there. He was up there fixing something and he took a misstep and fell through the ceiling. Well, the hole that the friends made, it wasn't just a small hole. It would have been big enough to let a man down on a stretcher. It says they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. The man then would have just arrived at the feet of Jesus. And I, I don't know, but I, I just imagine there must have been a hush that came over the crowd in the house. Imagine if, if we looked up and all of a sudden somebody was being lowered down in front of us right now. That would be a bit of a distraction, wouldn't it? Well, let's take a look at what happens next. Next, there's a startling statement. Take a look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, it appears to me that Jesus isn't bothered at all by this interruption. Uh, and by the way, this is the first appearance of the word faith in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus saw their faith. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but I want you to remember that phrase. He saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, Son, now that's a term of endearment, of deep affection. My child, he might say, Son, 
your sins are forgiven. Now, to forgive sins means to send them away, to cancel a debt. And that's quite a startling statement because it was assumed that this man's greatest need, of course, was to be healed of his paralysis. But really, that was just his, his felt need, if you will. His most pressing need, and Jesus knew this, his most pressing need was to have his sins forgiven, even if he or his faithful friends didn't quite understand that yet. You see, forgiveness of sins is at the heart of Christianity. It is the greatest miracle because it lasts forever. It is the greatest need of every man, woman, and child that you know. And there is nothing more significant than we can pray about than this pressing need for people to have their sins forgiven. Well, this startling statement of forgiveness in the midst of the, the hole in the roof and the crowd and the man being lowered, this startling statement leads us to see next the skepticism of the scribes. So let's talk about that for a moment. The skepticism of the scribes. In the first century, it was the main job of this group of people called the scribes. Their job was to copy the Old Testament scriptures carefully. They did it by hand. Back then, there were no photocopiers, all right? No electronics, and so it was done meticulously, letter by letter, very carefully. So these were exacting men. They'd been trained in this, in this method of, of copying the Old Testament scriptures, but they were also the guardians, if you will, of God's word. And so that's probably why they were in the house that day in the first place. They were checking to make sure that what this new rabbi on the scene was saying lined up with scripture. So they're checking out Jesus. And look at verses six and seven. It says, now some of the scribes were sitting there. I thought that was interesting. They're sitting there. It's in the midst of this standing room only crowd that I picture in my mind that some of these scribes are seated, maybe as if in judgment. That shows that not everybody there was a fan or a follower of Jesus that day. Because then Mark tells us they were questioning in their hearts. Notice that they weren't saying anything out loud, but they were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? And by the way, each episode of controversy that we're going to see in chapter 2 and moving ahead is provoked by a question about a behavior of Jesus or of his disciples. And so they have a question, uh, not, not just about Jesus' behavior, but about, about his speech. Why does he speak that way? He is blaspheming. So in their minds, in their hearts, they make a charge against Jesus, that he is a blasphemer. This is the same charge that will repeat, be repeated much later in Jesus' ministry when we get there in Mark 14. It's the charge, the rationale for Jesus eventually being put to death. He's a blasphemer. And so they make that judgment and they ask in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? And so they judge Jesus. Now, actually, the scribes technically are correct. Only God can forgive sins. There's many places in Scripture that tell us that. In Isaiah 43, uh, God speaking says, I am he 
who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. That's what God does. He is the forgetter of sins, the forgiver of sins. In Daniel chapter 9, it says, To the Lord our God alone belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. So technically, the scribes are correct. Only God can forgive sins. Maybe here's a, a helpful illustration for us to understand that. So let's suppose that three guys, we'll call them Bobby and Billy and Bert. Bobby and Billy and Bert are hanging out when Bobby stands up and he punches Billy in the mouth. Well, then Bert then turns to Bobby and he says, Bobby, I forgive you for punching Billy in the mouth. All is good. Well, what do you think Billy might have to say about that? Bert, hold on just a minute. You can't forgive Bobby. Only I can forgive him. I'm the one that got punched in the mouth. He didn't wrong you. He wronged me. You see, you can only forgive sin if it is against you. When Jesus tells the paralytic man that his sins are forgiven, in essence, he's saying, your sins against me have been forgiven. I have the right and the power and the privilege to forgive you of those sins. And so the scribes are absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. And if Jesus is claiming to be able to do this, then he is indeed claiming to be God. Well, this skepticism of the scribes, if you will, leads to our next point, a scolding from Jesus. How would you like to be scolded by Jesus? I love what happens next. Jesus not only forgives sins, but he reads their minds. He knows what's in their hearts, which is something else only God can do. In verse 8, it says, and immediately. Remember, that's Mark's favorite word. He loves that word immediately. It talks about action and pace and things happening. And so Mark loves using the word here because it shows that there was no delay between the thinking of these thoughts in the scribes' minds and Jesus knowing their thoughts. And so Mark says, Jesus perceiving. He was not only immediately aware of their thoughts, but clearly and fully aware. Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? There's the scolding. He calls them on the carpet right in front of the crowd. What are you guys thinking? Why are you questioning these things in your heart? I know what you're thinking about. I know what you're thinking about me. Well, I imagine that must have been pretty unsettling to those scribes. Jesus often used a technique like this of answering questions with counter questions. Now, they didn't ask their question out loud, but he knew the question. And so... What does he do? He asks a question back to them. And so in verse 9, he asks the question that no doubt confounded them. He said to the scribes in front of the crowd, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now at first glance, it's easier, of course, to say someone's sins are forgiven because there's really no way to verify that, is there? But notice that word, to say. It's easier to say that sins are forgiven than to say someone can walk. But in reality, both are difficult and really impossible, aren't they? For man to do. 
Both are possible only with God. And so now we come to verse 10 and 11. So look at verse 10, but there's a word of contrast. A contrast is coming. But that you, scribes, may know. See, Jesus wants them to know exactly who he is. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, get up right now, rise, pick up your bed. Instead of just lying on your stretcher, son, pick up your bed, lift it up, and go home. You see, by doing the visible Jesus is proving that he can do the invisible. He can heal externally, but more importantly, he can heal internally. He healed the physical to show that he can heal the spiritual. This would prove that the sins of the paralytic had indeed been pardoned. Well, after that scolding from Jesus, of course, we have to talk about the sensational cure. What a sensational moment. Once again, I want you to picture that scene. The scribes have, up to this point, not said anything, at least not out loud. No one but Jesus has spoken. And this encounter ends powerfully in verse 12. And so it says, he, the, the paralytic man, he rose. By the way, he did what he was commanded to do. He responded in obedience to Jesus. He rose and immediately, there's that word again, immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. I just pictured it in my mind. I don't know if this is how it happened, but I just pictured it in my mind that he picks up that, that blanket or whatever it is they lowered him down on and throws it over his shoulder and kind of steps over the scribes that are seated there, seated there in that big crowd. Maybe he kind of grins at him as he does it. I don't know. But he walks out to the astonishment of the crowd. And then I got to think about, what about those four guys? I guess I, I picture them looking down that hole into the room to see what's going on. And maybe they're like fist pumps and high fives. Yes, can you believe this? They are astonished, astonished. It goes on, it says they were all amazed. That means to be beside oneself. We would say to have their minds blown. They were all amazed and glorified God. They magnified. They recognized who God was, that God did this. They said, we never saw anything like this. They're astonished because a man's sins are forgiven and his feet are now strong. In Isaiah chapter 35, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, a prophetic statement about this period of time when Jesus, the Messiah, is there. It says in Isaiah 35, 6, Then shall the lame leap like a deer. That's talking about these kinds of events. That also makes me think about what happened in, in Acts chapter 3, very early on in the, in the beginning of the church when, when the uh, apostles were healing people. And they healed a paralyzed man. And it says, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I just want us to see that picture. This is a joyous, wonderful, sensational moment in time, so much so that these people that are healed are leaping for joy. So 
What does that mean for us? What does this mean for us? Friends, the very best help that we can give someone is to remove any hindrances, any barriers, so that people can come to Jesus. Would that we all have the ingenuity and the boldness and the compassion and the determination of these four friends so that we might bring our friends and our loved ones to Jesus. So this is a beautiful story from Scripture, but let's spend a few minutes now just considering some of the practical implications for us. Some of the qualities that we can pursue in our life so that we can be more like these faithful friends and be able to offer the best help possible for anyone. And that is that they might come to Jesus. And so I want to go back to verse 5. There was that little phrase, when Jesus saw their face, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. What do you notice there? Whose faith did Jesus see? It was the faith of the four friends. Sometimes Jesus acts in a person's life because of another person's faith. Just dwell on that for a moment. People in this world can be impacted by Jesus based on your faith, based on my faith. Many people will never come to Jesus unless someone else makes the way possible. And so sometimes we need to believe on behalf of others to help them come to Jesus. Now, we don't know the names of these four guys. They disappear into the obscurity of Scripture. This is the only mention we have to them. But I love how Pastor Ray Steadman, in, in, uh, in a message he did on this uh, particular passage, he, he had this little section that I stole. Uh, so he's talking about this event, and he, he names the four guys. Faithful Frank. Faithful Frank said, I believe we can get this man to Jesus. And then his, his friend, Hopeful Harry, Hopeful Harry said, I believe there is hope for this man. And then their, their third friend, Loving Larry, said, I really love this guy. I hate his sin, but I love him. And then the fourth friend, he's determined Dan, and you know what he says? Let's roll. Let's go, guys. What a great picture. What are we doing to help our friends and neighbors to Jesus. The paralytic was prevented from coming to Jesus because he couldn't get there on his own. He couldn't walk. If we hope to help those in our life who are hindered from coming to Jesus, it would do us well to model our behavior on these four unnamed men in this passage. Faith, our faith, must be made visible. You might remember this teaching from James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 2, when he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And so I was thinking about that phrase. And when Jesus saw their faith, 
And I just, I, I began to jot down a, a bunch of traits that I could see in these guys. And on the bottom of your outline, I have listed six of those that I want to just touch on briefly as we begin to wrap things up here. And so as we go over these six traits, I want you to ask yourself this, this one question. Do I exhibit these qualities towards someone who is in need of coming to Jesus? Do I have this kind of visible faith so that I can bring a lost person to the feet of Jesus. And so let's look at these. The first measure of our visible faith is caring. We've got to care. We're not told how these guys knew the paralytic, but obviously they cared about him. Our mission is to extend mercy to those who are hurting. We are called as God's children, as God's followers, to care for all kinds of people. People in your family, people in your neighborhood, people around you that are hurting, that are struggling, that are disenfranchised in some way. There is, there is no shortage of hurting people around us that need care, and they need us to see them. And so we must begin with caring. And then we need to ask God, if we have trouble seeing people, then we need to ask God to help us see people like he does. And so if you're a person maybe that struggles with caring for those who live differently than you or who have different political ideals or different life philosophies or whatever it might be and you struggle to care for those people, then here's a suggestion for you. Try this simple one-sentence prayer. God, break my heart with the things that break yours. Because you see, friends, as God looks down on this world and he sees all these broken people, he cares. He cares deeply and he wants us to care. Caring. Those friends were also then courageous. I imagine it took some courage for these guys to step out and bring their friend to Jesus. They had no guarantee that he was going to be healed. Maybe they felt self-conscious about carrying this guy down the streets. But they had courage to do it anyway. Maybe others might have thought that they were crazy. What are you guys doing? But you see, faith involves risk, doesn't it? Jesus saw their faith. And it was a courageous faith. And so they didn't fail. They exercise that courage. And so I just I thought about asking us this question. Have I failed in my faith recently? You could ask yourself that. Have you failed in your faith? Have you ever bailed when God was calling you instead to be bold? Determined to speak up for the Savior. Even when it's difficult in your neighborhood, in your workplace, on the campus, wherever God places you. Here's a wonderful verse to memorize. From God. He spoke it to Joshua, but the truth is still there and we can use it for, else, for ourselves. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I love that verse. We live in a world right now that is full of frightening things. Things that dismay us. That in, Increase our anxiety and our stress. And we need this passage to remind us 
that God is with us wherever we go. And so therefore, be strong and courageous. So not only were these four friends caring and they were courageous, but they were also, they were creative, weren't they? They were creative. Once they got to the house and they saw that it was way too crowded to get their friend inside, it would have been very easy to say, oh, well, I guess that's it, guys. There's no way we're getting in. But what do they do instead? They think outside the box. And they end up blowing the roof off, literally, right? And so when you reach out to someone to try to bring them to Jesus, you might encounter some obstacles. It might not be easy. And you might need to get a bit creative. And, and so I just thought I'd share just a couple of creative ideas. Maybe they'll generate some more creativity in your mind. Um, how can we be creative? Well, one way is just to invite somebody. Invite them to an event or a, a, a service or, or something. And I, I love some of the creativity that's bubbling around right in our own church. This past week, I, I met with Richie Green. And Richie is a creative guy. And he has this creative idea. And so we're going uh, to do it. And it's just coming up in a couple of weeks. R Richie's calling this the, the red, white, and blue pancake. How do you phrase it, Richie? Red, white, and blue breakfast. Is that right? Yeah. It's going to have blueberries and strawberries and whipped cream and pancakes. We're going to do it on the 4th of July. 4th of July is on a Sunday. So we're going to have a pancake breakfast. And I want you to think about who you can invite. Because you can get them a little closer to Jesus. Invite them to have breakfast. Invite them to stick around afterwards for a, a short church service. Less than an hour, we promise. You can make that guarantee to them and we'll get it done. Good food, good people, and encountering Jesus. So there's a creative way. Maybe you can think of your own creative way. You know, there's a young lady in our church that uh, almost on a weekly basis, I see her picking up these little booklets, these Our Daily Bread booklets or other things like this. And you know what she does? Just wherever she's at in the community, maybe it's at Walmart or on the campus where she's at, wherever, and she just gives these to people, to strangers. That takes some courage, doesn't it? But she's willing to do that. And these are full of just great little intriguing stories and, and anecdotes, uh, and they all include scripture. So uh, there's a creative idea. There's a whole stack of these out on the Welcome Center counter. And so take a couple, pray over them, and then give them to somebody. It'd be a great opportunity to say, hey, if you have any questions about what you read in there, I'd be glad to talk to you about it. Something as simple as that. Those are creative ideas. Look for opportunities to invite your non-Christian friends into your home and then maybe invite some of your Christian friends over as well and have a, a get-together where they just get to know one another. Maybe your non-Christians can see that your Christian friends aren't crazy. And your Christian friends can see that your non-Christian friends aren't horrible. And together, maybe some relationships will be built and we can help people move closer to Jesus. Caring courageous. Be creative. Maybe you're going to mow your neighbor's grass or rake their leaves. Maybe you can't do that by yourself, so maybe you'll invite some friends over. Maybe your small group and say, hey, let's go rake my, my neighbor's leaves or mow their grass. You can be creative and think of many more things, but it takes creativity. That's one of the traits that we visibly show to exercise our faith. One more, committed. Committed. These guys were committed. They stayed with the man. 
Even when there were roadblocks, they didn't just drop him and leave to fend for himself. Good luck, buddy. We got you this far. Hope it works out for you. No, it was no doubt difficult for them to transport him through the hilly, rocky country around Capernaum, carrying this guy. And then they got there in the crowds and they could have easily turned around. But instead, they found the stairs or this ladder. They took him up there. They dig that big hole out. They drop him down in there. They didn't give up. They were committed. Have you ever given up on somebody? If you have, I want to challenge you to do this today. Recommit to do whatever it takes to reach out, to bring that person another step closer to Jesus. And then determine to hang in there for the long haul. They were committed. And you know where commitment flows from? Commitment flows from conviction. Conviction. These four friends, they had faith. They had faith that Jesus could do something for their friend if they could just get him close enough. In their mind, this wasn't about them doing anything. It was about what Jesus could do. But that conviction prompted them to take some action. They wanted to see what the Lord could do. Too often, we put all of the stress on ourselves. I've got to do it all. No. Our job is just to get people a little bit closer, step by step. And so, these guys, if they didn't bring their buddy to Jesus, who would? He would have no hope. And so they were moved to take that action by some deep conviction. So how about you? Are you convinced? Are you convinced that the people around you that don't know Jesus are lost in their sins? Because that's what Scripture teaches us. Do you doubt that Christ can save that person who seems so hard or so bitter or so angry? Maybe you've said something like, huh, he'll never get saved. Or she's far too gone for God to ever rescue. If that's the case, then ask God to grow your faith. To give you the conviction to do what you can to bring them closer to Jesus. And then finally, I love this one, cooperation. Cooperation. There was no way one guy could carry the paralytic all by himself. Two would be difficult Three would be much better, but four was the perfect number. They could each grab a corner and share the load. They had to be going in the same direction, traveling at the same speed, and they no doubt had to coordinate efforts to figure out how to get him up on that roof and to figure out how to dig that hole out, drop him to the, to the ground. You see, together is always better. And we don't need to form a committee to cooperate with others to bring people to Jesus. We don't need to wait around for somebody else to make formal plans. We don't need to wait for the church to institute some sort of a program. We just need to get busy and think about who in our life needs to get closer to Jesus and what can we do to get them there. And once we figure that out, invite some other folks in to help us. Is there someone that you can partner with to reach somebody else that's far from God? Could you co-host an event? Maybe at your house. I don't know. Is there someone that you can invite to go with you? Maybe to go to a nursing home or a care center to, to make some visits. 
Could you gather a small group together to take on some sort of a, a meaningful service project for somebody that's far from Jesus? The, the opportunities are endless. It just takes God's people thinking creatively, having compassion, having conviction, and cooperating. So that's the challenge for us, folks, to have the faith to believe for others and we might bring them to Jesus. And let me just say this as we finish up the message time. The first place to start with helping people come to Jesus, the first place, not the only place, but the first place is to begin praying for them by name. And so as a way just to put that into practice today, a very practical way, I want you right now to begin thinking of two or three people that you know that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior yet. Give you a moment just to start thinking about those people. Think of their names. Picture their faces in your mind. Make this something real. See what their needs are. Visualize that. And then once you have those two or three people in mind, here's what we're gonna do today. On the communion tables, all four communion tables, there are these little sticky notes, little post-it notes. Lots of them there, there's extras there, there's pens. Today, in a few moments as we share communion together, when you come up to get your communion, I want you to pick up two or three of those little sticky notes. Take them back with you. If you need a pen, there's pens there. Take those pens with you, you don't have to bring them back. Those are our gift to you. We don't want your COVID-infested pens back, all right? <laughs> so you take them with you. But I want you to write the names of those two or three people that are in your mind. If you're not comfortable putting their names, you can put a code name or an initial. That's okay. It doesn't matter what's on the paper. I want you to visualize those people. And I want you to write them on those sticky notes. And then once we're finished with communion, the worship team's going to come back and they're going to lead us in some time of musical worship. And just any time as the songs are playing, as we're singing, just make your way back up. And I've already stuck three of mine on here. The, there's one of these uh, clear things at each station. I want you to just stick your, stick your sticky note on there. We're going to cover these with sticky notes. And these are going to become visible representations of people that we know that are far from Jesus. People that we have a conviction about. People that we have a concern and a love for that we want to pray for. And over the next several weeks, we're going to pray for these people. We're going to do some more creative things with these sticky notes down the road. But for today, think of those people, write them down, bring them up after communion and stick them up there. If, uh, if you're not able to get to one of the stations, either for communion or for the sticky notes, just raise your hand. We've got some guys in the back that will bring you communion or they will bring you the sticky notes and a pen. This is our practical way of making this message real as we think about who we know that needs Jesus and how our faith can be seen by Jesus in drawing others to him. Let's pray together.